rock bottom, you know, to me, at eight, 17, I went to treatment. You know, I was getting kicked out of my house. Um, so to me, at 17, that was a rock bottom. Uh, but then I joined the military. I went to the Marine Corps uh, and served four years there. But when I got out, then I started drinking. And so at the drinking point, the rock bottom for me was I became suicidal. I was in a very bad place. I was losing my family. That to me was rock bottom. I mean, I, I was losing everything. And the only way to not lose it was for me to stand up and get help. Hey there, Recovery Nation. Producer John here. That was the voice of today's guest, certified peer specialist and recovery coach Sean Mangold. In this episode of Full Potential Now, Ted and Sean dive deep on recovering from rock bottom. Don't go anywhere. So in the world of addiction, what is rock bottom? I mean, like, really, what is it? I've heard it over and over again that people, in order to address their addiction, need to hit a rock bottom. That their lives have to basically fall apart completely, and they have no alternative but to get help. In my clinical experience, this is the case for some people, but not for others. We know people naturally lose a lot of their resources in their life, such as housing, relationships, or jobs, as the disease of addiction progresses. It can literally bring them to their knees. But we also know that we can impact people in the process of the disease progression by offering help along the whole disease journey toward rock bottom. Obviously, the worse it gets, the more a person just gets sick and tired of being sick and tired. And the reality I've seen is that everyone is not the same in terms of when they want to address their addiction. But what if someone did hit their rock bottom and dug themselves out and became a light in the world of recovery? not only helping themselves, but helping others. They became a specialist in the area of recovery. All right, I am here with the wonderful, amazing Sean Mangold. Um, He's actually live in the Full Potential studio, and so we're going to be interviewing him today. He's a pure recovery specialist, um, which has become more and more fascinating to me as I've been out in the field. I mean, peer recovery specialists can be like the critical like lifeline for people to stay in treatment, to get in the treatment. So we just want to give you a warm welcome because I'm looking forward to hearing your story. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's a story of he was able to kind of go into addiction but be able to come out, which right. is like a super positive thing. Um, and then hear more about this uh, peer recovery specialist and your work with that. Sure. So welcome to the show, well, Sean. Thanks for having me, Ted. I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, yeah. And getting the, the word out about peer specialist. So, yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about, uh, like, maybe how you got into it. Okay. Maybe your story, even. Yeah, I was thinking about that as I was coming up here about that exact question. And I was going to be a smart aleck and say, drugs. Drugs, I that, like it. That's how I got into it. <laughs> and if uh, only we would have said, just say no, Sean. Right. <laughs> if it were just that easy. <laughs> right. right? Um, 
so, I mean, I'll go back and just my story. I mean, I started drinking at 14 and eventually led to bigger drugs. Um, and, and some people ask why. And for me, it was because I didn't want to feel, right? I mean, I didn't, I wasn't happy with who I was and that's why I did it. I mean, to knock it down into simplest terms. Um, and I, I was doing, I stopped doing drugs back in high school, at the end of high school, so 18. So I've been 30 years clean, sober wow. for, sober for 19 years. Wow. Impressive. Um, but I mean, it, there were bad times for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I already liked this part that you talked about was, um, this piece about like how you related use to your feelings. Right. So I was just like doing a training with a bunch of counselors, training them to be addiction counselors, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. The question came up. They were like, Ted, they're like, you know, what causes addiction? Do people get addicted because they're trying to cover up for their feelings? Do they get addicted because they have all these like mental health issues? Do they just get addicted because they like to, they like the thrill or the euphoria of it? And so um, oftentimes, you know, just talking with therapists and that sort of thing, and just the general public, we kind of sometimes think like, well, where does it come from? Right. Is it some deep underlying issue? And then we know a lot of people might face trauma in their background. They might have a predisposition to like anxiety or depression, and then maybe that leads them down the path. But so I'm always curious to ask people that have actually lived it. I mean, you've lived the struggle. I what, have. How do, how do you connect with that? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's it's an interesting question because I feel in my family, genetically, we are predisposed to addiction. I mean, everyone in my family is either an alcoholic, a heroin addict, or, or, or some sort of addict. But I like the thrill of it too. But I also suffer from depression and other mental health disorders. And so I don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg. I don't know if I tried to cope with my mental disorder by using drugs or one caused the other. So I, I don't know the answer. You really don't? Yeah. And yeah. I guess to me it doesn't matter. Yeah. The answer doesn't matter. It, it, it just is. Yeah. So what do you think was like your – so you get into it. And everybody always talks about all the bad shit that happens. And you have the typical, like, bad shit that happens to you. And then is there, like, a wake-up call? Is there, you know, like, they call it the proverbial rock bottom. And some people will say, like, yeah, there is a rock bottom. Some people say, well, it wasn't really quite the rock bottom. But it, I kind of was, like, you know, the old the saying, I got sick and tired of being sick and tired. Right. Yeah, my rock, I mean, I, I think I had a couple rock bottoms. I mean, rock bottom, you know, to me would... At eight, 17, I went to treatment. You know, I was getting kicked out of my house. Um, so to me, at 17, that was a rock bottom. Um, but then I joined the military. I went to the Marine Corps um, and served four years there. But when I got out, then I started drinking. And so at the drinking point, the rock bottom for me was I became suicidal. I was in a very bad place. I was losing my family. That, to me, was rock bottom. I mean, I... I was losing everything, and the only way to not lose it was for me to stand up and get help. So that was the big. Yeah, I went to jail. Was, yeah, I went to jail. Okay. And I didn't want to be there anymore. You know, so I. See, so was that was that the the point when you said like I had to stay, I had to finally like stand up and ask for help. 
I did, right? You just finally get so tired of being miserable every day, you know? And I didn't want that anymore, you know? And I, fortunately for me, I had people around me that, that knew me best and that had been with me through some of the hardest times um, and that, that st stood by me. So having people... Absolutely. Like with you, even though they've gone through the hard times with you, but still having those people hanging in there, hanging in there with you really proved maybe to be significant. Yeah. It, it, it was hard because they lay down an ultimatum because they love you and they want you to get help, but you don't take it that way, right? I mean, you take it as you're trying to take what I want, and what I want is to drink and do drugs. Um, but if you get through that first couple of weeks of rehab, you know, it's a little change in perspective. So just getting a couple of weeks yeah. allowed you to kind of get a different perspective. Yeah, for sure. You know, you just saying that last part really kind of made me think, and I never thought about it this way. Maybe it's a more insight for, for me in terms of addiction. But when you said you saw them as trying to take something away from you. Yeah. Like, did you, and when you said that, I actually got this thought of like, I was putting myself in like your shoes and I was like, I'm thinking they're taking something from me. I'm like thinking then would I also have the thought like, oh, you're making it all about you. Like, this is about you wanting to think what's better in my life and I know what's better. Is that some of the yeah, kind of like, what's the weird thoughts that go on to like feed, like pushing people away? That, I mean, that, that's exactly it. I mean, they... They are trying to take what you want and they're trying to, you feel like they're trying to push their agenda on you. Like, if you get help, we'll be better. Because that, that's the way it feels. It feels like there's something wrong with you, right? Yeah. Right? I mean, you're, you're messed up, you're crazy, whatever. And I hate that word, but I mean, it's been said enough times. Yeah, you just... You feel like nothing. I mean, that's what you feel. So you're feeling like super low inside, down, depressed, shitty. And then you have like, and I imagine these like, you know, because I always get these questions about does interventions work or not with people. But then I'm like putting myself in your perspective right now and kind of like trying to walk through your shoes. And I'm like thinking, well, now it would be like bad enough to have one or two people coming at me. Mm-hmm. And I'm like feeling crappy and they're, I'm like thinking they're trying to tell me what to do, mm -hmm. let alone you get a whole room of people. Um, and like, how does, like, how does that work? How did you shift? How did you get out of the thing of like, you're trying to do something to me to, do you get what I'm saying? Like, I I, I've actually never talked about this little, it would be like a nuance. And when somebody comes to terms, like everybody's always talking about like, yeah, you get sober and it's great, blah, blah, blah. And you hit your rock bottom and then you got sober. But I think there's all these little nuances and shifts that take place. So for that one, you know what it was? It, I mean, I was still mad. I mean, I was still mad at the people that wanted to put me away, basically, into in, in the treatment or, or leave me. But what hit home the most, I mean, I, I had a little girl at home, right? Mm. Right? She was two. And she's the one, without saying a word, that made everything right. I mean, 
I, I did it for all my family, but without saying a word, I, I would say that she provided the most impact. Oh, wow. Right? Wow. Yeah. I mean, because when I say family, I mean, right? I mean, I, I took her to bars. I mean, I took her and did driving. Things that I would am horrified about as I sit here sober. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I can't live back there. But that's... That she's it. She's so, so when you were in treatment, so you were still even. Are you saying that when you were still in treatment, you were still kind of pissed about having having to be there? But then it was it her that you really. That was oh, you're like, talking about treatment, okay? Yeah, because yeah, I thought you said like you were still even though you went to treatment. It's not like you walked through the treatment doors day one and all of a sudden you let all your resentments and anger go. You know, I had been through treatment before at, at, eight, at 17, when that was more kind of a, well, I guess they were both forced. Uh, but this was, this was different. This, these were people, when, when you surround, your, when you're in a group setting and people have not the same stories, but similar stories to yours, and you realize that you're not the only one, it just kind of lifts a, a heaviness off you to say, I don't have to go this alone. Right, mm. and that 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 was it. There's other people like me that have right. kind of gone through yeah. maybe similar stuff that are going through. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. for sure. So, do you think that's like part of the? Yeah, you know, I kind of think about because I get so many questions from all these therapists about like people who are like they call it pre-contemplative stage of change. Mm-hmm. They're they don't really see they, themselves as having a problem. How do you work with these people? That sort of thing. And then there's like some sort of movement and they move through the stages. Um, but some people always try to, it seems like the first time out, they always try to go it alone and try to like, I can conquer the beast by myself. Yeah. And then in all, I mean, all the people I've worked with, I, I hear so many stories. It always starts with going alone first and then realizing like this opening of like, oh my God, I'm, I'm not the only one. Right. And people are going through what I'm going through. And like you're saying, like lifting that off your shoulders, but then probably feeling maybe supported. I mean, I don't know. Well, the, the alone doesn't work. I mean, it didn't work for me. I don't, it, maybe it works for some. I, I don't know. I don't know of anybody that's worked for it. Um, but for me, being supported um, by my family, by friends, by other people in recovery, I wasn't... This is weird to say. I mean, I never did meetings. I wasn't an AA kind of guy. I'm not an NA kind of guy. Not that it doesn't work for some. I, it just, just, it just wasn't me. Yeah. Um, and so I feel lucky in the sense that I, I just don't, I don't, I don't need that. Yeah. Um, so what path did yours take? So you go to treatment. A lot of people promote community support, like AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, yep. Narcotics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know the research shows that that's effective for a lot of people. But I know, like, one size doesn't fit all, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so what was your path? How did you – because you put together you put together some solid years of sobriety. I mean, yeah, it's a long time. And, and I'd like to say it was me, but it, it, it's not, right? I, I feel like – it was a miracle. I mean, I hate to talk. I don't want to talk faith on a podcast because not everybody believes it. Faith, right? Everybody's past different. So, like people, 
unordinary things work right. for some my, people. My path was it was pretty simple. I mean, I just lived life. I, I stayed away from alcohol. I stayed away for a long time from people that drank alcohol. Like for a long time, for a decade or more. I didn't go to bars. I didn't hang out with friends when they drank. Um, and my, my wife knew she doesn't drink. Um, and so she was my number one supporter. And so I just, it was easy for me. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to say I wasn't tempted ever when I got down or felt depressed and, you know, wanted to numb out again. But by the grace of God, I just, you know, it wasn't hard for me. So your faith played a role. Huge faith-based. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And I, you know, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I know that doesn't, that doesn't, uh, work for everybody that I work with. Um, so, you know, they don't go near church. Yeah. You know, which is fine. You know, I'll meet them wherever they want to meet, you know, and we can talk about whatever they want to talk about. So how, just out of curiosity, because this is a question I hear so often um, from clients. They come, like they're putting together a period of sobriety. Mm-hmm. And then they hit some, you know, it's the, it's, it's not like it's a flat line. It's like kind of like a mini roller coaster ride because right. it's kind of what life is, right? Yeah. You know, you take it off of addiction. Everybody's life is not flat lined. It has ups and downs. Sure. So how did you fight through, like, maybe think back to like maybe the closest time you thought you were going to relapse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what did, if you could remember any tools or anything that you thought of, that got you out of that mode? Because I know a lot of listeners, if, you know, they contact, contact me via email mm-hmm. and they'll be like, um, you know, what can I do? I'm, I'm ready to relapse, blah, 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 blah. The, the biggest thing for me, uh, and I think it is important for a lot of people in recovery, is just to connect. And when you have that connectedness with other people in recovery, because like my wife's a big supporter of mine. But she hasn't gone through addiction. She hasn't gone through that pain. She doesn't get it. Yeah. So when I can reach out to uh, other friends in recovery and that have gone through this and have that conversation of, look, man, I, I'm not feeling good today and I really want to use, I can pick up the phone and call and we'll go out for coffee or, you know, and they've always been there. You know? so, so you've established some sober, like, People who are who are in recovery, even though you wouldn't have got like get, met them at AA or NA, right. you sort of like found them on your own. I did, yeah. Or and even my friends. I mean, even my friends. They, I mean, they they know I don't drink. Yeah. And they, if I were to ever pick up a beer, I, I, they'd be the first one to slap it out or call my wife. And okay. I mean, I just have that kind of support group. Okay. But so I, I think it's important to recover to be connect with anyone. Because the biggest, uh, biggest problem issue with addiction is loneliness, right? When we get lonely, that's when we're most vulnerable. Hmm. So. Wow. Well, any tidbits for our listeners on? Because I actually just got an email from a listener who reached out, and she said, um, "Ted, I think she's in recovery. She's." 
I'm, I'm due to go to rehab after, if I'm remembering correctly, I could get it wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm due to go to rehab on Monday, residential treatment. Okay. This was Friday. And she goes, do you know of any books or anything that I could read just to get me through? Because I don't know anybody sober. And I just want to make it through to Monday. So if you were to get that same... <laughs> Same thing. So, and she said, I've been using meth and coke for a long period of time or something like that. And this is my first, she said, I do remember it's the first time in, she was going to go to treatment. But she just needs to get through. Get through the weekend so get she can get weekend. there. She was feeling all alone. That's what, when you said that part about feeling alone mm-hmm. and lonely, that's what sparked that, yeah. thinking about that reach out. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. I'm not a book. I'm not a big book reader. Yeah, but uh, outside so. of books, like what yeah. would you, if she was here right now, what would you probably say, man? Say so reach out to anybody, anybody that, that is a, a positive support to you. Um, reach out to a recovery coach, a peer specialist, uh, someone that can walk with you down that recovery path uh, so you don't have to do it alone. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I, I, I've had that same phone call, um, and, you know, I, w- I would just sit with her and, and talk to her. Mm. Um, so that's, that's how we got through that. It wasn't easy. Yeah. So, yeah, let's get into this. Peer, is it a peer support specialist, or what's it called? Certified peer specialist. specialist. Yeah. And t- tell, tell listeners, like, what that's all about, because this is, like, a big piece that's been added to the AODA treatment world that I don't think was really there. Yeah, many years ago, it was a missing piece. Yeah, and I'm, I'm fairly new to it. I think in November is when I was licensed by the state of Wisconsin. Um, but it, basically, it boils down to to be an advocate for someone new to recovery or in recovery um, that uh, is looking for resources, whether it be housing, transportation, you know, financial or food. Um, and and treatment uh, as well, but there are many places that uh, variety of places that a peer specialist would work, whether it be a clinical um, setting or a one-on-one setting, which is what I do. Uh, I volunteer my time, so I, I'm not a paid peer specialist. I work for an uh, organization called Base in Evansville, and so really, I just uh, I'm kind of a a lone wolf out there, um, just helping people uh, that that are struggling with addiction. So, how does how would like somebody get hold of a peer specialist? So, let's just say, you no know, people listen across the United States, etc. But, like, just in the like Wisconsin, like in our area, we're like we're hanging out in Madison, Wisconsin. How would somebody get hold? Like, I'm in. Let's say, I did IV heroin? I'm ready to get in recovery, and I'm like, all right, I want to reach out to somebody. I hear about this peer specialist. How, how would they get in contact? How does how does that work? Well, for me, they get in contact. I, mean, I have a I have a web page, okay. a Facebook page um, that is plastered all over you know the community. Uh, I have cards and flyers. Um, I also work with the police departments and EMS. Okay. So anytime anybody's transported, um, they uh, get my card. And at that point, it's really up to them to call me. Um, but to answer your question, I know that wasn't an answer to your question, um, I would call Rock County or, or Dane County, uh, and they'd be able to point you uh, in the direction 
of a peer specialist uh, of company. Well, they may work for a clinic, yeah. You know, in a, in a clinical environment. Um, so you may find one at a treatment center. Okay. Um, but I know Rock County could probably pull in, which is I say Rock County because that's where I'm from. Yeah. So they could lead somebody yeah. down that path. Excellent. Yeah. But it's a. It's really just someone that guides someone that is struggling to make sound decisions in their life, you know, to help them set goals, uh, help them achieve those goals, uh, and not tell them what to do, but have it be a strength-based program where, you know, they make decisions. They're in the driver's seat, but I'll walk with them yeah. down that road. So if they want to go to, like, a community support meeting, something like that, yeah. and they're, like, nervous about even showing yeah. up, yeah. You would, what would be your role in that? Like, you, I imagine you probably have had that. I can go. I mean, I, I'd be happy to go um, to it. I haven't had that happen. They've been nervous, but I have other contacts in Evansville as well that I can call on okay. th- that would walk them in that. Um, and so that's happened before. Um, but no, I have not. That's a weird dynamic in Evansville. <laughs> Meaning, you know, I don't work for anybody per se, it, and so it's a it's a small town, and what I come across is the stigma, right? I mean, people don't want to be associated with addiction. I have a problem. I'm not going to lay it out there, and I feel like if I do, yeah, then I'm going to get backlash for it. Which is interesting because nobody really talks about this because I'm doing some consulting on some rural agencies, yeah, and they run into the small town dynamic where like, all right, I'm going to go down to an AA meeting, but like. Um, like I'm going to know like six people that go there yeah. and they're going to see me go there. And even though it's like confidentiality, you kind of, the person wonders like, well, how far is this going to spread around town? Right. I mean, I don't know if that's kind of what you're talking about. Yeah, no, totally. Or they, or they don't want help at all because they don't, they don't want to be stigmatized with oh, that guy's got a problem. He's got a mental health disorder. You know, it just, I, I just want to end that. Yeah, you know, and I feel like that's what I'm trying to do, um, doing this peer specialist. So, yeah, it's a. Uh, I, I love what I do, you know. I do. Um, I love helping people, but it always comes down to them wanting help, right? I mean, I, I can make that phone call and I can go meet with you, but until you're ready, you know. Somebody told me once when a student appears. Or no, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Ready. Yeah. And that says it all. Yeah, it does. So when you're ready, I, I'll be there for you. So. Yeah, talk a little bit more about that, because I think, like, family members sometimes struggle with that idea of, like, wanting the person to get help. You know, obviously, they love them, they're concerned about them, they don't want them to die. And then they won't quite, like, follow through. And it's sort of like, I've heard some people say like similar, like when they're ready, they're ready. Yeah. But could you talk a little bit more about that? Cause I think that's like, like education for the public to know, like you can give everybody a thousand and one resources, mm-hmm. but there'll be a certain percentage that probably won't take any. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, if I had to boil it down into a sentence, you can't fix it. Right. It, it is something that has to be, I told somebody the other day, they have to feel, because I asked that same question about me, well, how do I fix it? 
You can't. They have to feel so bad and so miserable that they don't want to be there anymore. That's bottom. And everybody's bottom's different. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, that's, that's just the nature of addiction. But for... I had a parent that uh, had had a child that was using and she was scared and she was nervous and didn't know what to do. And it's about setting boundaries. And those boundaries are hard to do. Mm. You know, if you have to kick them out of the house to save their life, knowing that you might not save their life, that's hard to tell a parent. That's hard for a parent to do. But the alternative is your family being destroyed. And it's what happens. Yeah, what have you seen like from parents? I mean, you've you know, you've probably dealt with some in this in this realm. Mm-hmm. Like, what do they do? Like, I mean, because that's the hard because I've run into that clinically too, is yeah. the person's in an active use cycle, they're sort of like staying at home, they're really not listening to anything, they're just continuing to use. And if anything, after about a year or so. It's almost becomes almost like enabling behavior. Yeah, absolutely. Because they're able to stay in the house, get some money, and continue to use. And then some parents are like, well, what, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to kick them out? Is this enabling? Am, am I supposed to be, do tough love here? Yeah, I don't know. I, tough love for me is what worked, right? Yeah. My mom kicked me out. I had nowhere else to go. So the only place that I could have gone was the Marine Corps. Or I would be dead. Yeah. Uh, so I went to the Marine Corps. Marine Corps saved my life. Um, what made you decide that? So, you, so you're actually at the crossroads of your life. You're what, at like that point. 18. Yeah. 18. The path is, I got this idea to go to the Marine Corps, or I could just kind of continue on. Yeah. So <laughs> I didn't want to die. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's part so of you it. you were already nervous about that part. You kind of could I, almost see that. I knew that if I didn't go to the Marine Corps or some type of service... And there wasn't going to be any type of service with my my family's Marine Corps. I, yeah, I was going to be dead. I was going to be in the street, you know, somewhere. Okay. And so that yeah, that was a crossroads. And you're young at the time. Eighteen. Mm-hmm. So often in the world of recovery from addiction, we talk about thought process and mindset and how to avoid relapses. We even talk about how this relates to self-esteem and identity. If you feel better about yourself, you'll do better by yourself. But how do we shift our mindset? Is the proverbial rock bottom simply a way to bring us to our knees and accept help? And as part of the acceptance, shifting our view of ourselves and the world around us? Or do we need a fast track by the military, which breaks you down and then builds you back up in a way that makes you not just be in the Marines, but be a Marine? Or is a bit of both, along with some good support and not going it alone. So you make the decision, you say, all right, I'm going to sign up. Yep. If you could, if you want, talk a little bit about like what that Marine Corps experience was like for you and how maybe did you shift like your belief systems? Did things shift <laughs> within you in some way? Uh, it was terrifying. <laughs> Absolutely terrifying. I mean, I'll tell a story at boot camp. I mean, the first night of boot camp, I was laying in bed because you go to sleep at the position of attention, which is to say your legs are straight and your arms are by your side. So you have to sleep like that. Yes, they will. Yeah, I, well, that's the way you go to sleep. I yeah. think people are just so scared to move 
Yeah. But they don't. And that's the way they wake up. So in the morning at about zero dark 30, I, this guy's in my ear. He's like, hey, it's time to get up. I'm like, yeah. He's like, no, it's time to get up. I'm like, I'm up. And he says, boy, you better open your eyes and look who you're talking to. And I look over and it's this big D.I. And I'm like, I, I, I'm up, sir. So I mean, that was terrifying. So boot camp was terrifying. I hated every minute of it. But so you don't have a choice but to, to mind shift at that point, right? I mean, they break you down to nothing. I mean, zero, you're a nobody. Yeah. And then by the time you graduate 13 weeks later, you're a Marine. Now you're something, right? And so I think, there's a proudness to it. Right. I think that was the point. I, didn't, I wasn't ever proud of who I was. Not by any fault of my parents or anything. It was just kind of an internal dialogue that I gave myself. Yeah. But at that moment, yeah, I was proud. And I stayed sober for about a year. Right up until I went to England. And then, well, I was sober no longer. So you went to, you went to England. Yeah, England, yeah. England. Yeah, I spent two years over there. And... Um, that's where things go off the rails then? And yeah, but you know, I was functional, right? I mean, I was off the rails, but so was everybody else. Yeah. So it was normal. So you were working and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, yeah. some of that like military background, still young, getting up, going to work, that sort of thing. And then did you become like more of a drinker? When I got out? Yeah. Is that the... Yeah, I mean, I was, yeah, I was a big drinker. And at that point it was, you know, I wanted to party. But then the partying became way more than all of my other friends. And, and then it became every night after work. And then it became in the morning at the office. And that's about the time that stuff went sideways for me. You know, when I was drinking at the office, you know, it's just... And then, and I don't know what the reason was, but I mean, I started seeing... I mean, I was afraid to, to be at home with the blinds open, so I shut the blinds. I'd sleep in the closet, you know. So, I mean, there were, right, there were other mental things going on. And I think I probably drank some to subdue those. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, in the end, it was bad. Yeah. You know. See, it's like some, like, depression, some mental health issues yeah, pop yeah. up in yeah. the midst of your drinking. Yeah. I mean, I was depressed as a kid. I mean, yeah. if I look back... It was always some sort of depression. Um, uh, but, yeah, I mean, I, one doesn't help the other, that's for sure. So, you, so at 18, you make this decision to go to Marines. Mm -hmm. Great decision. You come out. You're, you're sober. Mm -hmm. Not when I come out. No, yeah, when you come out. But you lack, like you go yeah. a year without yeah. Yeah. using. Mm -hmm. Then you fall back into the cycle. Mm -hmm. And so how do you get yourself back out of that? And how long are you in there? I didn't stop drinking once I started until 2000, 2000, April 24th, 2000. Did you pretty much like, from, like drank every day? For the most part. For the most part. Yeah. So how many years is that? Uh, or 88 to, to 93. I'm not good at math. Yeah. <laughs> you figure it out. <laughs> so it's from 93 to 2000? Yeah. So a good solid seven years. You yeah. Get it, it, every, it wasn't every day in the Marine Corps, for sure. Yeah. And it wasn't every day when I first got out. But it became every day. It just amped up. Yeah. Yeah. 
Legitimately, do you, do you see that with just people you know that have struggled with addiction? Because I've heard this a lot, is that you can have stop and start periods, but eventually if you're really addicted, it just inevitably just amps up every time. Yeah. You kind of play with the fire, but eventually... Yeah, well, burn. people ask me why I... People that don't know me ask, well, ask me why I don't drink. And I said, because I know. I, I won't stop. And I, it, it just goes bad for me. So... I know that about me, and uh, you know I don't want to lose my family. Yeah. So really, it's about finding something important for you. Some meaning. Some meaning. Purpose. Yeah. yeah. Meaning, purpose, uh, love. Right. I mean, everybody tries to fix everything, but really, what's it boiled down to? Love. Right. Yeah. Because if you don't have that, and you're feeling alone. You're more likely to probably just yeah. stay with the same old. Absolutely. Those are profound words, Sean. Man, those are really profound words when I think about it. Like, it, you really boil it down pretty simply. It's love connection. It is. And then having hope or having, like, some sort of future with some meaning. Yeah. Did you, did you ever see the, the YouTube video or the TED Talk about Rat Park? I'm sure you have. It sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah. So rats, I mean, you put them alone and, you know, they'll eat with water laced with heroin and they'll do it all day until they die. Put the same water in another group of rats. They won't. They won't touch it, or rarely touch it, because they have a connection with each other, right? So, yeah. so being alone, like we talked about, that is one of the issues. The I think one of the biggest issues is to be alone, because left to our own devices, man, we're not good. Addicts, anyway. Yeah, you know what I'm thinking about? I don't even know if this is even related, but... Because I've always been... I re- read all these books and stuff. I'm constantly reading, but... I've really get, given some thought to, like, our templates, our mental templates of what we think our life is and what we are. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, like, like, connect that with your thought just now of, like, if I'm in the midst of an addiction, I have those same thoughts. That's why I'm still using so if I stay alone Mm -hmm. I'll probably be alone with those same thoughts if we bring in person B who has different thoughts and different ways of thinking that isn't like addicted then that would impact intersect with my thoughts and possibly like change the complexion of them Mm -hmm. where if I hook up with person B who's already using they'd probably be more consistent with my thoughts and I'd probably Correct. go out and use. Right. So it's almost like you almost like need, it goes back to kind of similar what we're talking about, you almost like need some support of some sort that's different than what you're thinking. Because if Absolutely. you're alone with it, you, you're probably, how can you possibly get out? If you haven't got out already by yourself, I mean, I mean you could totally debate me on this, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm like thinking if... If I haven't figured out how to get out of this on my own already, what makes me think I'm going to be able to do it this time by myself? I'll debate you just briefly because I know you're smarter than me. Oh, no, no, no. no. I'll tell you you a story after that. (laughs) No, because, I mean, right, if you talk about different drugs, right, I mean, if you talk about alcohol, it's different than opioids, right? Yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, they got those hooks. And so I, I think... Even if you wanted to, you don't get out because you don't want to be dope sick, right? I mean, 
Yeah, you're going to be sick on alcohol but withdrawal, but not that sick. Yeah, well, yeah. You're, like, you're, just, you're doing it because you don't want to get dope sex. Right. That keeps it going. Yeah, so that keeps it going. Yeah. Um, but if you can get someone in that has been down that road and who has recovered or is on MAT, you know, then, yeah. But I mean, just to, to, I don't think, I don't know, you, you tell me, I mean, that someone can get out on their own. Depending on how far in there, yeah, in the opioid. Yeah, the, the less you're in, right. the less time in, probably the easier the out. The more time in, it's almost like you have to walk further to get back out. Right. And in walking, having to walk further to get out, there's so many things that can trip you up along the way. If you're alone, for sure. Yeah, that part. I was just, I was just so curious about it because I think of like this thought process of if I'm thinking the same thoughts, what makes me think these same thoughts are going to get me out somehow, make the outcome different? Because I think of like, for instance, take it off of addiction. Okay. Let's put it on um, trying to like, let's say lose weight. All right. I have to go on a new diet, right? Mm-hmm. Versus I want to lose weight, but I'm going to keep eating the same things. And if nobody ever tells me about a different way of eating, Mm-hmm. I'm going to keep eating the same things and wishing for a different result. You know, that the definition of saying doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. Yep. But it's sort of like you're almost stuck there until you get information in that says there's a different way of doing this. Mm-hmm. And then even if you get the new information and there's a different way to diet, do I necessarily want to do it? No. And I almost wonder, like with addiction, a bunch of stuff comes in, well, you really shouldn't. I mean, most people that shoot, IV heroin daily, probably know they have probably have a, a drug problem, yeah, I would guess. I would think so. But information comes in, says that, but you some you don't choose it. You, you know what I'm saying? Like, it still doesn't impact you immediately. It's sort of like alcohol. Like, people say, well, you're drinking too much. Yeah. You should cut down. Yeah, I if, should. I, if I hand you a pamphlet and you walk away, that pamphlet's probably getting deep six in the garbage can. Yeah. But if I hand you a pamphlet and we have a conversation because I've been there for somewhere similar, maybe now we have a conversation. We have a different narrative in your head. And maybe then you think about, maybe it doesn't happen then. Maybe it happens two weeks from then. Yeah. But maybe you don't die. That's the life and death. Right. Especially today. Yeah. With the opioid crisis and all this fentanyl floating around. Scary. I mean, very scary. Did you listen to, like, other people's recovery stories, and did that impact you in some way? Because I always kind of think of, like, people thinking about recovery. I just had this thought. I was like, why not have them listen to a bunch of, like, podcasts or YouTube videos about people who've been in recovery or have gone through it Mm -hmm. just to get, like, a different kind of thought process going? Did I listen to other people's podcasts? Yeah, or did you listen to other people's stories? Or was that just like kind of later down the road? Uh, man, the first person I ever listened to, which is sad, <laughs> was Bob Forrest, uh, who's, uh, who's on Dr. Drew, uh, Celebrity Rehab. Yeah. So he was up at uh, Wisconsin Opioid Forum. And so I listened to his story. And I listened to his podcast, because he's been through it. Right? Yeah. But he doesn't tell his story. I mean, it, it, but he did tell the story that day. Um, 
and so I've never listened to anybody's story. I've told my story a couple of times. And not only is it, it helpful to hear from other people, but man, it helps me. It fills me up to tell my story. To know that maybe my story helps somebody else. That's why I do it. Yeah, it's a powerful thing. It very. Because I've, I've heard this from so many people. They yeah. say, even though I'm telling my story for you, it actually in some sense helps me yeah. at the same time. Yeah. That's remarkable. And, that, you know, uh, I saw a TEDx story um, with Nadine Muscovich. Immediately, I, mean, I was in tears. Tears when she was telling her story. It was just so powerful. Uh, and it made me want to tell my story. You know, so I don't know where I'm going to do that at other than here. <laughs> this is the first, <laughs> first stop. This is the first stop along many, man. Yeah, on. This right. is the first one. Yes. But I think that's a good idea, though, to have people in recovery, to have a recovery podcast, right? And, and have people come in and tell their story. That, uh, they have, I mean, they have a lot of them, but I like this idea of like having it be the first time they told their story. That's what I mean. Like, like to right, get it out to a form. Yeah. I mean, there's Don't Die Wisconsin. Yeah. I mean, those guys, I mean, they talk about all kinds of things. But to have somebody that just comes in and say, this is where I came from. This is how I got to where I am today. And this is how beautiful life is on the other side of that. Dude, this would be so good. This gives me a great idea of like, this would be cool to somehow orchestrate something yeah. where we provide an opportunity for people to tell their story and then we put it together to air it. Yeah. And like, like a few stories in a row of people like tell, even if it's your first time telling your story. Yeah. And like, I like the idea of like hope too, because I think like in recovery, that's like a big thing. Like I deal with a lot in the clinical realm. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that sometimes is a little bit lost in the mix of the complexities of clinical decision-making, all this kind of stuff. But it's the simple story of, like, hope. Like, yeah. in order for somebody to get out of addiction, they got to have some hope and some meaning. Right. And how do they get that? By seeing other people that have done it. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I mean, because I, I mean, they can... Nothing against doctors or, or, or addictionologists or, or, or whatever. But to have somebody meet them in their place and the stuff they're going through in the street, that's different. You get a different narrative. You get a different story there than you would at a doctor's office. Would you agree? Yeah. 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 Like, you get it, like, more real and raw. Real, yeah. Yeah, rather than what's packaged in, like, a 30-minute appointment. Yeah. I mean, you probably get definitely some realness there for sure, but like when they're in the moment and living their lives, I mean, and they're like vulnerable and open, they, they yeah. tell you the way it is. Yeah. And that's actually the stuff that's impacted me the most. It's like it's this real, like, raw delivery of this is actually what it's like, Todd. And that sometimes is heartbreaking yeah. in so many ways. Very heartbreaking. Yeah. yeah. Well, do you have a. What would you recommend for resources for people who are, you know, maybe out along the journey somewhere? Like maybe they're even maybe they listen to the podcast and they're like, "Hey, the Sean dude, I kind of got him a little bit." Yeah, I was thinking about that. that I was thinking about that question, and then so they're on Facebook. They have different uh, 
recovery, like uh, keep the plug in the jug. Uh, and, and so people will go on there and talk about the struggles they're having currently, yeah, the successes they've had, um, or kind of where they're at in their journey. And I think that's helpful to see, you know, to see that, again, I'm not the only one struggling. There are other people out there. You can connect with those people. Um, and so, I mean, that's that's where I usually go. Yeah, the Facebook. Because yeah. I've seen, like, they have Friends of Bill. They have Narcotics Anonymous. They have all kinds of, like, online recovery groups connected in Facebook. Yeah. And so you could, like, that might even be a first step. You could just jump on that. And what I hear from people is when they first get into that and they're just starting out the recovery process, what they'll do is they're like, you can just like snoop and just like, yeah, like you, you don't have it. to post anything. You can just like gain from just people posting stuff about themselves and how they're doing and, and like the positives that are in their life or maybe their struggles, but you actually benefit from yeah. even seeing that. And I always think like, and then what? Yeah, yeah, but then you're changing your mind from thinking about using to like recovery ideas. Yeah, and they have live watch parties as well. Yeah, you know, so these are people that host watch parties where they actually have a meeting. Yeah, you know, um, and so if you can't get out of your house or don't want to get out of your house, uh, you can do that. Um, I'm trying to find out what it is, uh, but I can get it to you. Yeah, because um, we'll maybe maybe what we'll do is we'll post some of those links. Yeah, when we uh, post this podcast. Of just like real resources that people could just click on, yeah, and check them out because yeah. because I think it's valuable to people. I do too, and I yeah, to be honest, I didn't know anything about them probably until about three months ago. Um, but yeah, it, it's cool because some people will post pictures of what they were like in addiction, yeah, in the midst of it, and then they'll post pictures a year later. It's amazing, dude. I've seen that. It is actually like it's mind blowing. Like how people looked and then yeah. how they looked down. It's like even six months. You're like, yeah. this looks like a totally different person. Right. I cannot believe it. Yeah. And that's got to be inspiring in itself. I do. And I post those and I'm, to everybody I know. is, You don't think recovery works? Well, here it is. It does. Yeah, it's a picture of yeah. like this does actually work, yeah. which is super cool. That's beautiful. Nice. Well, um, are you ready for the speed round? Oh, yes. I heard of these. All right. All right so I got... Five questions. All right. This is random. I know. Stuff. I know. So, um, what's your favorite food? I always ask that one. Gosh, man. Steak and lobster. Steak and lobster. Favorite restaurant? Favorite? I can't afford it. Rare. Steakhouse on the square. Okay. In Madison. Yeah. So, I was, because I always like to give people shouts if they ever visit Madison. Where's the place to go for steak? Rare. 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 There you go. Rare. Right there on the square. What's your favorite band? Ooh, favorite band. Man, I one listen, of them. I listen to all kinds of music, but I guess all time would be U2. U2? I'm a huge U2 fan. Are you? Fan. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I saw them a few times in concert. Lucky. Ph- phenomenal. Yes. Um, what's your proud? What do you think was one of your proudest moments of your life? Anyway, I think we talked about one. It was probably the Marine Corps when I graduated from boot camp. Um, but I think more recently, uh, really was the first time that anybody called me for help as a recovery coach or peer specialist. Oh, so the yeah. very first time that happened, yeah. that was a profound experience for you. Yes, I was scared to death. I didn't want to. I didn't want to screw it up. Mm. Right. I mean, 
not that I have this person's life per se in my, in my hands, but they're coming to me for help. They're at the lowest point in their life, and they called me. Yeah. That's, that's big for me. Man, it was huge. Um, and so it, it went down and spoke. It was beautiful, you know. But you were nervous as hell going in. Oh, my gosh. I get nervous every time I go. Yeah. Every time. That's probably a good thing. Yeah, if I wasn't nervous, right? You think like, oh, I know, I've done this, man, blah, right. blah, blah. Right. So when you come in there, you're like full in. You're all in yeah. to help this person. That's awesome. Yeah. What a profound. People like you, lights in the world, man. Lights in the world. Oh, making the thanks, world a better man. place. Thank you. All right, the fourth question. If you could be any actor, who would you be? Um, Matthew McConaughey. Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> Why? He's a cool dude. Be, that's it. <laughs> he cool just dude. has the cool factor. And and there's nothing else. <laughs> and he sits behind, you know, that Lincoln in his commercial. Oh, and he just talks. <laughs> and he's even cooler. Right. Right. <laughs> Not only was he cool in the movies, but now he's cool in the commercial. Yeah. How could it, that be? He could just say a few words, and I'm just like hooked. <laughs> It's like heroin. He's like heroin in a person. <laughs> I would watch anything that we said except for Magic Mike. I didn't watch that. All right. Excellent. The final question. If you had one thing to say somebody, to somebody thinking about um, getting into recovery or overcoming their addiction, what would you say? I would say... Don't walk, run. I mean, it is, it is a, you're going to do hard work. I mean, it's going to be hard. But there's people to help you along the way. And it is better than what you got going on now, for sure. Excellent, excellent. Well, we want to thank you so much, Sean, for yeah. coming in and, and doing the podcast. You're definitely lighting the world, making the world of recovery a much better place. Thanks, Ted. So we want to thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. All right. Thank you. Hey there, Recovery Nation. Producer John here again. Thank you so much to Sean Mangold for sharing his time with us. You can find Sean Mangold, Recovery Coach, on Facebook or follow the link from today's post on fullpotentialnow.org. If you like today's episode, you can subscribe, leave a review, and listen to past episodes on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. And visit fullpotentialnow.org for your free TED tools, including where to find a rehab center near you. This episode featured music by Pat Reinholtz and me, John Procruzzi. Thanks for listening.